Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Few anecdotes. One is um, October, you know, kind of my favorite month in a way. I, I shouldn't say it, okay? My favorite month is probably April when the snow melts and it gets warmer. But there is a part of October I like, and that's when the Travel Channel and the History Channel, they have the specials on like the haunted history of Gettysburg and haunted Chicago and the Winchester Mansion, all these things. Um, I really love that growing up, like watching these documentaries. They don't do it as much today, but uh, so excited. Every time those would come on, once you hit about mid-October, and then they would peak at Halloween, and then guess what? November 1st, boom, gone for like another year. And be like, oh, no. It's like when the, growing up and the, uh, the, the fair would come to town. It was like a block away from my house that they, they set everything up. And it was so exciting to see the rides being assembled and, and know what was going to happen. And, and then like when it was done, you know, they work fast. Like in a day, everything is kind of taken down and the trailers are, you know, being moved out and stuff. It's like, oh, no. And then it'd be gone and it'd be like, oh, I got to wait another year for buying my big bucket of tokens and trying to win a belt buckle off of the bulldozer game. So um I wasn't as much into Halloween this year. It's actually my favorite holiday. So I we really decorate up the house, um, and we did quite a bit this year. Not as much as in years past, but I don't think to the point where anyone coming by, looking at it, would have recognized that we didn't do quite as much. Um, it's it's the house where when kids walk by, I like to stand out kind of toward the end of our driveway. So we have a, a concrete driveway, and then we have um, this huge three overhead lighting system on top of the the it's really cool i mean it doesn't look weird or anything but we had it when we had the um outside of the the house redone new siding and windows and all of that about seven eight years ago but uh you can light up this whole area so it's really something i mean so if your parent trick-or-treating and and trick-or-treating happens at night where i live um it's cool because like you can know you know you can watch your kids walk all the way up and and to the house and all of that everything's very well lit um so yeah any anyway like i like to stand at the end of the driveway sometimes and just listen to what the kids say as they come up um because we'll be like oh this is the house with a bloody leg or i remember this house from last year or a couple of years ago or whatever so um get a kick out of that you know we have about 600 trick-or-treaters a year they actually block off the streets in our neighborhood because it's kind of the most popular neighborhood in my town for trick-or-treating. Um, and my daughters um, were out, my um, oldest daughter and her friend were out for about two hours trick-or-treating, and their biggest highlight was coming back uh, from the part of our neighborhood where they give out the full-size candy bars, um, kind of where the really, really big, fancy uh, homes are, uh, about two blocks two box away so we give out the we don't do that but i think we do a couple so um you know the smaller ones but we also invest in the experience for the kids but uh, but it was fun it was it was a it was a fun time um anytime it's during the week i kind of feel more rushed because i got to get home from work and then um you know help with the setup and kind of get my own stuff um you know, and, and, and I was, I dressed as Wisconsin Badgers, uh, coach Paul Christ and which really wasn't dressing at all. I just, uh, threw on this, this nicer Badger, um, kind of long sleeve, uh, coach's shirt that I had and, a, and a visor and it kind of spiked my hair a little bit. And with my glasses, yeah, you, it wasn't too hard to, to pull it off somewhat. So, um, but uh, I wasn't a firefighter. I was a firefighter a year ago. Um, but yeah, I was. I was Coach Paul Christ. So at the time, the Badgers were ranked number four in football in the country. So um, that hasn't happened in a long time. Um, 
I remember, you know, so we're talking about Halloween and we're past Halloween, but I re, I remember we, we had a farm, uh, a, a crop farm out of town when I grew up and, um, the people that we rented the land from, they, there were a few things. So this is, this is like probably the late seventies. I remember they had a picture, um, taken of the original farmhouse, which was still on the property. And, and hadn't been used that, you know, they kind of used it for storage and stuff like that. So, I, you know, just, it looked like this old spooky house because that's what it was, you know, probably built 1880, whatever, or earlier. And, um, anyway, they, they had a picture of this and this was back in the days of, you know, you're talking just the regular pictures before digital cameras. So the picture taken maybe 1960s, somewhere in there. And on the porch of this, so the, you know, they, they bring this picture out and they would do it a couple times and it'd be in a photo album. But on the porch, there was a misty figure of, of someone. And, and it, it really looked, I remember it really looked like somebody standing on the porch. And the story was that one of the, the brothers originally that had built this, this house of, of the family, um, you know, generations ago had fallen and, and, and been killed during the, the building of this house. And that was him. And they also had, um, one of the, the relatives, this older lady, her name was Sadie. Now, I don't know the exact relation, like, was she the wife of whoever or like, uh, uh, the sister of one of the, the husband of who, I don't know, you know, it was one of those things. But, you know, she was like in her eighties, nice lady, very nice lady, super nice lady. But, um, but Sadie had this psychic ability, it would claim the psychic ability and, um, would claim to see picture frames around the faces of people who were about to die. So, um, and you know, we're talking again, like in, you know, late 1970s, um, you know, so, and so anyway, we've been, we've been trying to get rid of this uh, old computer printer stand. I don't know if you remember the type, but they used to, it had it kind of looked like a um a microwave cart from back in the day is when a microwave would sit on the cart and uh, i actually had for, for i had this huge amana radar wave or radar range i guess they called them back when i was in college and the thing this would like sit on something like it would sit on a cart like this and that radar range like literally was like um i i i, I mean it would take all your muscle to to carry this thing. It, it was it was massive, and it you know weighed probably eighty pounds, and it was just huge. Like you put it on the counter, and that's like all it would be ever on that counter in in this area. And, and you know how much radiation got out of that thing and and entered the room. I don't know, but we've been trying to get rid of this cart because like we we had a garage sale and nobody would buy it. So we put free on it. Nobody would take it. And I'm thinking for free, like somebody, I mean, it's, it's, it's beat up a little bit, but it's functional. Like someone might say, that'd be a cool thing to have in my garage to put whatever on. So I put a free sign on it. And when the weather's nice, I'll wheel it down to the end of the driveway and, and push it over on the grass a little bit, hoping someone will take it because I've kind of noticed in our neighborhood when people put things on, they usually put pretty good stuff once in a while by the curb like our neighbor once um a couple months ago like put a grill and some shovels and stuff like that and really like in three hours everything was gone but no one's taking this so um it, it's just one of those things we're having some um some home uh internal uh remodeling done right around uh christmas time hopefully be done before christmas and that will make it into the dumpster if it's not gone by then so Unless anybody contacts me here, but the deal is no shipping. Um, you would have to come and pick it up yourself, and it would be waiting out at the end of my driveway for you. No, I couldn't do that because then somebody else could take it. I'd have to, I'd have to uh, keep it inside until you until you drove your your um, unlimited range to come get it. Like uh, what, Cappy? Good friend Cappy, the captain in uh, Captain Capitalism. Um, out of Minnesota, uh, found himself a car, drove down to Ames, Iowa in his podcast. So, Cappy, if you do a search for used printer cart, and they, they had these set up 
it this way so you could put the, the perforated paper underneath that had the little, little perforations on each side so they would catch in the wheels. So as the printer turned, it would bring the pieces of paper up. That's how old this thing is. But um, plus, it's, it's like I said, it's like a solder furniture type thing. But when solder furniture was a little bit better quality, I guess. Um, but anyway, if Aaron, if you're looking and, and you're like, you know what? I, I need a, a printer cart for downstairs. My consulting business is, is just thriving. I need more. Um, uh, I'm going through too much paper that I am folding up into eighths and putting into my, my memory folders. Aaron, you can make the trek. Just type it in. It is on, um, it, I, you'd have to go in the use section. It is a microwave uh, or, or printer carts uh, section of printer cart, uh, cart gurus and uh, type in your range of maybe what here, about 300 miles. Yeah, 300 miles. I'd get you over to where I'm at. And uh, it shows up. And hey, if you want to bring along the GF, uh, you know, she can put it through her paces, push it down the road a little bit, see how it goes. Um, it does have wheels. And then uh, if you want it, it's yours. There's no full tank of gas. And there's no negotiating on price. It's not negative interest rate policy going into place here where I'm paying you to take it. But cap, if you want it, it's yours. Um, so I observed, uh, so I was going to work um, a few days ago, and I observed somebody in front of me. So there's a there's an intersection right before where you kind of turn where I go to work. And it's kind of hit, hit or miss if you hit it when it's, you know, green or red. So I'm waiting at this intersection and uh, the person in front of me, so I can see through, you know, their window, see them in the car, they have a lit cigarette and they take the cigarette and they flick it out, out the passenger side window. So they have to take it across instead of like just out their window. I don't know the whole why, and, and they managed to flick this thing out and it flies pretty far out the passenger window. And, and I'm thinking, wow, like, first of all, not cool. But the other part is like, there's a risk involved there because like, if, if you do that wrong, you've just now flicked a, you know, a cigarette that's landed on the seat of your, the passenger seat or somewhere on the floor. And it, it could really start to be could really start to be a fire drill to watch you try to scramble around with that but uh but i'm like wow I just remember watching that i'm like that seems like that was a a lot harder option than what was available to you plus like probably shouldn't have done that at all um and then just getting into it i don't know if any of you have heard of this this is a simplified version of a story that is accurate hiccups is accurate I heard um, through different accounts, but the fires in California affected the um, like Hewlett Packard headquarters, Hewlett Packard, the printer, so remember printer, printer story, my printer stand. It, this wasn't supposed to link together this way, but it just does. So Hewlett Packard, though, the original communications between Hewlett Packard, like Denny Hewitt and Tommy Packard, so not that those were their names, but anyway, Hewlett Packard. So, you know, founders of Silicon Valley, the original communications, like the handwritten, the notes, the little diagrams, the, the business models, those types of things, the very early things, you know, you know, the, the back of the Denny's napkin or the placemat where they're, they're kind of roughing out their business strategy. This, this type of stuff was lost in the fire. Now, this is where it gets interesting. It wasn't lost because like their their building burned down where Hewlett Packers had their headquarters. I don't even know if it was the headquarters where his fire was. It was some substantial building related to Hewlett Packard, like design, you know, engineering, design, research, whatever. But the building itself was pretty much unscathed. Um, you know, what was made to be basically fire fire resistant. But these files, okay. Or this box that contained, you know, the stuff that probably was Smithsonian quality, who should have belonged in the Smithsonian or on some, you know, protected display at Hewlett Packard. I'm thinking of, you know, like the Constitution behind the bulletproof glass and all of that and National Treasure. Well, this stuff burned up because it was in a shed, basically. Okay, like a storage shed. <laughs> so you're thinking, um, hey Pete, like um, you've got we got the lawnmower out back in the shed. 
and um, let's see, you got the Weed Whacker, we got the Bee Spray, and don't we have the box out there that has like the Hewlett, the Hewlett Packard papers and stuff? And now nah, I don't know, maybe it's in there, maybe it's not. The weird thing is though, like they had they had discussions about how to protect these ar- archives. And even to put them in like a safe room that if it, there was a fire, like it would automatically like spray down this foam and they'd be in this protected case. So, I mean, they had all of this, yet the stuff's like out in a shed and, it, and they lose it for posterity is gone forever. Um, so it is, it, it is a strange, bizarre irony of all of, of how this ever came to be. And the fact that, I mean, as awful as it is now, and you don't have scans of it, and then Hewlett Packard makes scanners. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many weird parts of this, but it's gone. You can't get this stuff back. So, I mean, it's bad now. I mean, we can remember what it was like, I guess. I mean, through the archives of um, others in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, Bill Gates is still alive. And um, so, I mean, we, we, we know. But in 100 years, in 200 years, 300 years, we look back at Silicon Valley. Like, this stuff's gone. It's gone forever because nobody went out, took this stuff out of the shed. I mean, it, it, it's that simple. No one no, no one went and took this stuff out of the shed. So it's just, it's just crazy. So, all right. Um, anyway, talking about um, craziness. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Safety Doc Podcast. Mark Twain is quoted as saying, humor is tragedy plus time. And it seems that every time I'm doing a, a, a show, something tragic has happened like the day before or in like 24-hour proximity of the show. Um, and and it, it's, it's really difficult to understand that interface between um, comedy in a show and and tragic events. So you're not saying something that seems insensitive. I did the co-show with Larry Roberts of show 48. And, and there's a there's a lot of I mean, Larry and I have a great professional on air chemistry. So I hope if you haven't listened to that, you go back and listen to it. Um, it's engaging. And if you, if you especially have something long to do, like Aaron, you know, your, your trip to Iowa would have been perfect. Although I know you, you had the GF with you on the way back, not well on the way down on the way back that you're doing a podcast. Um, but you know, this is going to be great stuff. Um, a podcast 48, give it, give a, a listen. Um, but Larry and I talk about, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? How do you do that without seeming callous? Because you're always judged about, what your work is judged in the context of the moment, not the context when it was developed. So it gets really hard. It gets really hard. So we, we go through some strategies, I think, on when you're podcasting out and, and how to work with that. Um, so what came out of that though is I've been, I've been thinking, um, as I developed this show, which is the humor response, a deeper look at humor. And we're going to break it down into kind of the three main theories of humor. Now you'll say, there's more theories of humor, Dave. I'm like, there is. There's more theories of humor. I know that. But there's three main theories of humor. And if you can know these three, I think you can include these in, in typical conversations. And there's going to be a point when you're going to especially use relief th- theory. You're going to understand that you're going to know how to use it. Um, 
And it, it's really important. I was just listening to um, a show about child sex trafficking by um, the Awareness Podcast. So you can go to awarenesspodcast.com. Um, Hector Sol- Solis is the um, the journalist, the professional putting it together. Not Hector, that's Hector has a full-time job in addition to being a podcaster extraordinaire and just a wonderful person. Uh, but he, he, um, interviews, um, and, and, and has such incredible stories that he, he pulls from. He works with a news reporter, um, out of Los Angeles to talk about some investigative re- reporting with child sex trafficking. Um, and something out of that, and first of all, and it is awareness podcast is 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 moving, and you know each episode, you know about fifty minutes long, powerful stuff that is not going to be in. It's just, it's like the headlines behind the headlines, stories behind the headlines. Um, but go in and just go to awarenesspodcast.com, try out a few of of the shows. Um, Hector's Hector has been in you know uh, podcasting. Uh, this is a new area, though, where he's really gone into some deep investigative journalism. Very, very professionally produced. And as a parent, I had no idea of the the information that was shared. I had no idea that that was really happening out there. Um, and I, I was inspired to go on and to do a little more research. Um, and that is going to inform, again, you know, in, in the work I do with schools and just general consulting, um, expert witness, whatever it might be that has to do with safety. What I learned from those um, episodes, the two that he did with child sex trafficking, um, are going to be you know pieces of information I will incorporate uh, forever as I, as I'm going out and and working to help students and parents stay safe. But there was a point in one of his um, episodes where it was um, the news reporter had stated, and I believe it was Christine O'Donnell um, out of Los Angeles. And Christine, I'm sorry if I have this this wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Christine O'Donnell out of um, Los Angeles. I, I know it's Chris it O'Donnell's like Christine or Christina, I believe it's Christine. Um, but she she talked about posting. This story about, um, at that time, it was like a 15 or 16 year old girl who had been the victim of sex trafficking and then, um, did this interview with Christina when, with Christine when she was 18. So when she was adult, she, she went on camera and, and did this interview, we wanted to do this interview. There was a ton of thought put into, um, you know, how, how to do this interview to inform um, others who might be in the, in that situation of how to, um, get help, how to get out. And it's actually not uncommon. Um, there was a interview with, um, Stefan Molyneux did with a musician, a female musician, I believe, uh, with the Pussycat Dolls, uh, just a few weeks ago. Stefan, Stefan Molyneux, a podcaster, um, out of, out of Canada. And, and one of the things that she talked about too was, was the, um, the, the dark side of that industry. And when she was going up on stage, there was a, a, a young girl who was just idolizing her. And she said that was a moment for her where she realized like she didn't want that girl to follow in her footsteps of being so manipulated by the industry and only getting a, a small amount of money you know, a, a week and having to be involved in so many, I guess, negative, negative sides of, of that music industry. But that's, that's an, that's an aside, but I'm saying this, this story that was told, um, about the sex trafficking, um, there were a number of posts, forum posts afterwards, and some were positive about the story and some were negative. Like, you know, well, this girl is a drama queen and she was, um, she was smiling throughout the interview or during the interview. So it must not have been that serious or had that big of an impact on her. So that, that was like one of the things I'm paraphrasing that was said, but was smiling. Somebody came in and criticized that she was smiling. And that comes to a point that I want to get into today because I see this happen a lot in school safety 
issues and just safety in general where conspiracy theorists, for example, come in and they'll take a clip of uh, someone who has lost a child um, in a school shooting, you know, the the day before or has lost a spouse in a shooting or, or some tragic event like that. And this person might have um, a few moments where they're telling the, an account of it or they're remembering that person and, and they're laughing or they're smiling. And of course, like you just look at, look at that in isolation outside of, you know, the, this context of maybe an hour interview with them or whatever. But you look at that and it's like, that doesn't fit. Like, why in the world is this person laughing and smiling? I mean, their, their child just was, was killed in this shooting. And what happens is it's, it's something actually that is a, a psychological defense mechanism. It's, it's extremely well proven. I'm going to go through it right now, but it's called the relief theory of humor. Okay. So three aspects of humor, relief theory, superiority theory, and incruous juxtaposition theory. So we're going to go through and we're going to, we're going to talk about, about those. Um, but let me give you just a kind of a brief uh, rundown of each one. So the, the relief theory means that you are so overwhelmed with emotions um, that your mind is one, not picking the correct emotion. And second, remember humor is tragedy plus time. So as the person separates a little bit from the event, because initially they're in shock. And as they start to separate from the event, as they tell the event, the safe way for their mind to do that is to interject with some humor. Humor, it, it, it's, it's like if they can put that out there, it's not, or that, that little bit of a smile, it, it's just a natural reassuring thing. They don't even know they're doing it. A little bit of humor. Um, and, and it's a way then to build this, this, this very shaky bridge, which then they can let their message go out on top of. Um, and it's actually, if, if you watch it, okay, like the way that I watch it, it shows just how much they're damaged, how much they're scarred and how, how much trauma is in that event. Um, so it, it is wanting to share that event. And this is the only way it can be done without screaming and, and just without complete tears and incoherence. So it is this way that the body does it. It is relief theory. Um, you'd see it with like in MASH. It's a TV show, but you'd see it with, with the doctors. Um, but it, it does kind of have that gallows humor. Um, you know, uh, to it, th this way of dealing with, you know, very, uh, overwhelming, um, emotional situations. So again, it's relief theory. So that's what was present in this interview. Okay. It was relief theory. So this, this young lady by doing this is really exposing the depth of how much she's been harmed by using these defense mechanisms, um, which actually, if you, again, you just look at it at the surface, it's going to be like, oh, that didn't, it seems she's laughing at, you know, she's, or at least she's able to cope with it or whatever. No, it's, it, it's an insight into this is really, really harmed this, this person. Um, and I've listened to talk show hosts, I guess, um, or people who've interviewed, but probably more talk show hosts who kind of get angry with their guests and they'll be like, you know, if you're going to laugh about, you know, the, the fact that you're, you know, your parents left, you know, you and you were younger and you, and, and this happened or whatever, then I'm not going to be able to keep doing the interview because, you know, it, it just doesn't send the right message. Well, no, it, it, it doesn't send the right message unless you stop at that point and say, listen, this person is, is, is using a lot of, um, kind of interjecting some laughter, interjecting some humor. Larry Roberts on Readily Random, a lot of his guests um, have overcome addictions. Sean Iams Fuller, you know, would be be one. Um, and and so you listen, very captivating interview, uh, humor, some smiles. But if you listen to the content of the story, very, very tragic, which Sean was able to overcome. Um, but wow, I mean, you listen to that 
and you can analyze the points when Sean was using humor so he could tell you about absolutely how horrible it was when his parents couldn't trust him to come over to the house and he was basically banned because, you know, he might take something and sell it and, and just how much it hurt him to lose that trust of his parents and that reflection back upon himself um, of, you know, what have I become um, because of this addiction? So I guess what I'm trying to, to, to stop right now and get across is we need to understand this relief theory. When people are sharing with us, whether it be kids, okay, whether it be kids, because, again, it could be interview. You're interviewing a child on something that, you know, maybe it's abuse in the home or something like that. And, and your first impression off that interview is, oh, they don't, they don't seem, I mean, they're affect, they, they, they seem like they're using some humor and things like that. But you have to know that, that, that definitely could be this relief mechanism. So keep working at it, keep asking questions. And eventually, um, y y you know, with all of these interviews, I mean, that's like not the whole interview. There's different, You'll, you'll see different aspects of, of um, their emotions will kind of roll through these interviews. But it's, it's, it's that thing that, that happens, and it, it just is so horrible. It's where it is someone then that's had a, a parent that's lost a child in, in a shooting. And, and they have, you know, a three-second clip where they're smiling or laughing, and that's isolated out, and somebody goes in and says, this is a conspiracy theory. Look at these people are all actors like this. They wouldn't do this if this was genuinely, um, you know, something that they had experienced. No, that's completely wrong. As a critical instant debriefer, again, I've debriefed people who have dealt um, directly with uh, situations involving death when we talk about emergency responders, fire, police, EMS. Um, and I can tell you, um, I've, I've been in the room, you know, when people have told their story and have, have threaded it with a little bit of, of self laughter or a little bit of a smile back to themselves, um, as tears are coming down their face because it's painful and they're trying to share that story. Um, again, so relief theory. I just, I just want to point it out and I'm pointing out there, Christine, in support of the interview you did in the follow up interview where you, um, wanted to bring awareness to people who are posting negative comments and kind of adding to the, vic the victimization um, of, of, of this um, young lady. And the, you know, you had indicated, I believe, uh, a, a statement and, and obviously a professional statement because, you know, this is what, what you, what you do um, of saying people generally too, at first time in front of a camera are, are, are nervous and it's not uncommon for them to laugh. Um, and, and show different emotions. And I'm saying, in addition to that, there's this whole psychological component, which completely comes behind that of, of the more you see that, especially from a victim, it's a window inside of, oh my goodness, you've been hurt. I feel so bad for you. I mean, if anything, it, it needs to warrant empathy, um, of how much that person has been, been hurt. It's almost like the bigger you smile, the louder you laugh, the more I know you're hurting, whether that makes sense or not. But there's hard science behind it, hard science. So let us talk. There was a story, um, Why We Laugh, How Laughter Can Help Build Resilience by Dr. Alec Lickerman, MD. He's a general internist and former director of primary care at the University of Chicago and has been a practicing Buddhist since 1989. So uh, it was posted January uh, 23rd, 2011. Again, why we laugh, how laughter can help build resilience, Dr. Alec Lickerman, MD. So I'm, what I'm going to be sharing now is from this, this article. He also has a book. Um, it, you can find it on Amazon, The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self. Um, so again, The Undefeated Mind on the Science of Constructing an Indestructible Self. I like his work, Alex Lickerman, MD. Okay. So he, he was talking about, um, okay, some, the psychological studies. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. 
Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. everybody you're back got your whole bowl of cheetos in front of you and uh, you're like i've got my earbuds in and i am enjoying this safety doc episode so um so yeah we're talking about psychological studies and dr lickerman interestingly um that same nervous laughter so we talked about that relief laughter or nervous laughter it's it's been noted to incur in many psychological experiments when subjects have found themselves placed under a high degree of emotional stress specifically involving perceived harm to others in an earlier podcast long years light years ago in my show i talked about the milgram experiment and the milgram experiment um, occurred on a college campus and basically um college you know, you know students and I think others were brought in and given a small amount of money and, and asked to turn a dial, a voltage dial, um, higher and higher as somebody in another room, which they couldn't see, but they could hear. Um, they were doing, um, basically, um, they were, they were learning things. And if they got it wrong, then someone would be standing next to you. Let's say I'm, I'm doing the experiment and, and here's the, the, the knob in front of me turning it all the way up and it would have like red over here like high voltage danger whatever they'd be like okay turn it up like to this level turn up to this level and and they would like press the button to do the jolt and and maybe a light would come on in the other room so the person knew that they were pressing it now the person in the other room the actor was never being um zapped okay there were no wires or anything like that but then they would play the part they'd be like oh i i can't take this anymore you gotta stop or you know i have a heart condition i mean it was but yet, um, the person, and these are just tip, these are people they're like you and me, okay? They would just keep turning up the dial, turning up the dial because they're following the authority figure. And this was built kind of off of that, you know, understanding the behavior of, of soldiers in Nazi Germany. But one of the things here is as people are turning up the volts, okay, it turns, it, it turns out they're, they're also, um, they're also, uh, they're, they're laughing. Okay. They're, they're, they're laughing. I mean, not overtly wildly laughing, but they're kind of, you know, a little bit of a, of a smile and, and a laugh as, as they do this, this nervous laughter as they're hearing these screams of pain from the other room. So it's like, why is that happening? It's just, it's, it's this coping mechanism of, of that allows them then to override and, and to go through and to do that behavior. So. Um, wow. It is, it is just, is just crazy. It's just crazy. But think about that. Think about that. Um, so some psychologists classify humor as one of the mature defense mechanisms that we invoke to guard ourselves against overwhelming anxiety. And you're like, Dave, you look like you're reading off something. Yes. I put notes together for this, you know, so it is cohesive to some extent. Um, and as Aaron would say, Anthem, look this up. Okay. But I don't have a map. I'm giving you a place of, but I guess you could look where Stanley Milgram did the experiments. But anyway, um, so again, this may explain why some psychologists classify humor as one of the mature defense mechanisms we invoke to guard ourselves against overwhelming anxiety as compared to the psychotic, immature, or neurotic defense mechanism. So if you have, if you have Hannibal Lecter who's, who's laughing or someone who's completely psychotic or mentally ill or, you know, some drug-induced, you know, laughter, that's, that's different. But we're talking if someone has been victimized or if someone is, does have rational thought, but something is just so overwhelmingly happened, okay? You know, um, it's not uncommon to see like that, that humor, um, 
So it's like in Ghostbusters when they're when they're on top of the of the building at the end and and uh, they have to cross the streams to take care of Gozer, but uh, but um, you know it was Peter Vakman terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought, and all of a sudden Bill Murray's like, "Hey, I like this plan. Let's go for it. Let's cross the streams." And you know, they, at that moment, you know that that humor takes over, so they can actually do what they need to do. Just a movie example, but come on, it's near Halloween, right? So. Um, being able to laugh at traumatic events in our own lives doesn't cause us to ignore them, but instead seems to prepare us to endure them. Going back to that interview from the Awareness podcast um, that Christine O'Donnell had done with Hector on child sex trafficking, again, think of that person telling their story of being a victim of sex trafficking and, and let's use this sentence again. Being able to laugh at traumatic events in our own time doesn't cause us to ignore them, but instead seems to prepare us to endure them. It was Mark Twain who said, um, he said something. He said, hey, humor is tragedy plus time. Humor is tragedy plus time so so the further out you get from something you can also um feel comfortable in using some of these mechanisms to be able to talk about it so being able to joke about a traumatic loss usually requires the healing distance of time um however so like losing a limb for example may make a person suicidal at first but with the passage of time they adapt to it and eventually they might find where they're joking about it saying yeah, you know, like I can, I, it, it takes, doesn't take as long for my shirts to dry because, you know, the one, I, they don't have the one sleeve or something like that. Um, and these are just some things that I'd read. But um, what, what, what magic does the passage of time work on us that permits us to laugh at events that otherwise admit us cry? And per, perhaps definitive proof that the, um, alarm our loss raised when it first occurred was in fact false. Like, you know, you lose an arm and I, I haven't been through that. I knew somebody who, who lost an arm and you go through that and it's, well, uh, let me change this. Let me change this. Here's an example. I, I had a appointment not too long ago, a routine checkup with my doctor. And she said, um, you know, one of the things, like if somebody hears they have, I have a cancer diagnosis because, um, my doc and I kind of talk about like when people initially get bad, what's perceived, you know, is really bad, serious news. So in my job, you know, in working with school safety and, and, and people being experiencing trauma and that, you know, I, I deal with that. And as a doctor, you know, she deals with that in a different realm. So, um, but she was saying, you know, I can talk to somebody. I can say you have cancer, um, but, you know, it is like the early stage of stage one, like, you know, super high rate of being curable and all that. And she said, all they hear is I've got cancer and all they think is my life is over. Okay. So it's one of those things of once you, you get that, that distance of time, and you do go through your, whatever your prescribed treatment is. And you realize, you know, from this day on, you know, I am a survivor of cancer and, and you conquer cancer. Um, then it's the person can start to, you know, have happiness come back into their life and have some perspective and, and even, you know, some, some, you know, aspect of, of humor as, as they're, they're talking about their healing. So it's that healing distance. So the thing with the healing distance is, has it changed over my lifetime? I'll be 46 in a few days. So you can uh, message me, email me, and I will tell you where to send cards. So, um, but has, has it changed over my lifetime? I don't know. I think it has. Um, if so, when? I'm not sure when it exactly changed over my lifetime. Um, the healing distance, how long it takes to recover from something significant. Um, I would say for a nation, you know, certainly 2001, the attacks on 2001 was a part where um, there was a, a, a long healing distance for that. And especially the fact that, you know, it, it, it 
took what a year, you know, to to remove all of the debris left from the twin towers. I mean, th- those reminders were there as those trucks were going through and and barges of of debris and things like that. Um, and of course, human remains. And so, you know, it was that that healing time, that healing clock. And I don't know what changes it. And I also kind of think of this as, you know, we have the nuclear clock, like three minutes to, to midnight. And uh, again, readily random and Joe Navarro talking about how close we got to, to nuclear war on his watch. But, um, Joe stepped in to, to make sure that didn't happen. But, but this healing distance, what, what this healing clock is right now for us as a country, um, I don't know, but it's, it's not as far away as it used to be. Um, and, I, 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 I don't, I guess I don't know. Um, I don't, part of me thinks we heal faster for the fact that we've become so experienced in being harmed as a country, as, as odd as that might sound. Uh, but it's become familiar to us. Um, and, and we've gotten better at coping and moving on. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that we completely accept and, 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 you know, have, and have processed things and they're over and it's done and, and we move on. But, um, but it does mean that I, I think because of the, the number of things that inundate us through the, the news, whether it be, yeah, someone, you know, driving on a pathway in New York and, and killing people, bicyclists and other people, um, that to, just keep going with the frequency of these things. We have to have some way to process that and give ourselves um, some healing distance and where we can, we can move on from that. So I'm not exa- I don't understand what this clock would look like. Would it look like the healing distance um, is, is, is narrowed now that we, we overcome these things, but we don't generally heal or is it that, we're perpetually, it's like there's a wound and every time it starts to, to scab over and heal that immediately it's, it's roughed up and damaged again. So is it this thing where we're just perpetually always in, in this, this damaged, um, state and we kind of have gotten used to it as, as a country? I don't know. It's deep. I can't really get my mind too much around that. And I spent time putting this together, but just, I, I just want to put that out there for you. So being able to face an old trauma with humor may very well then be considered a reliable signal of psychological recovery. So it is someone who had gone through something five, ten years ago that was horrible. Or even the, the event where Christine O'Donnell was, was interviewing the young lady who had been the victim of sex trafficking two to three years prior to that. And, um, when it initially happened, I believe it, it, proceed it closer to the time when she became an adult and Christine had interviewed her. But if you're interviewing someone of, of something that happened a few years ago, um, we might see then that they were able to look at it as that was then, this is now. It's not like this continuum of time. It's like it's two separate things that happen. You'll see that sometimes, like I've, I, I know friends or like you lose someone who's passed. Like I've had good friends who have passed, and I definitely know when that grieving period has kind of of ended and when i think of them i i i just think of how i appreciate it knowing them and what they contributed and to to me and me being me and smiles and things like that and i'm not feeling that hurt when i'm when i'm doing that so i think um being able to face an old trauma with humor like my friend Connie, who I mentioned previously on the show with passive cancer, uh, just a couple of years ago, had a wonderful sense of humor. And I will never forget, um, I, when I worked with Connie early in my career, we had, um, a, a luncheon at where we worked and it was catered. And our boss actually went to Kentucky Fried Chicken early in the morning and was able to, um, get a special deal like on all of the day old stuff that didn't, so it's like the the Dale biscuits and the Dale macaroni. And I don't know if they kept the chicken overnight, like how that was, but so and the thing is, then she brought it in and, and like treated us to the special like you know luncheon meeting, and and also said like that she had got this all day old stuff. To me, 
it didn't really matter, but it was it was just this goofy, goofy thing. I was like, why would you tell anybody that? Day old. And uh, so Connie and I used to, to kid about that. We used to work that in all the time. So laughter, laughter I've heard laughter as a weapon. I'm like, ah, I don't know about that, you know. Laughter as a weapon, definitely not a weapon against people, but um, it can be used as a weapon against a situation, you know, a situation that is so absolutely overpowering you that the only way you can get through it is is to use laughter. Um, it's other, other, so, you know, laughter, um, it, like the nine the nine eleven attacks, I I mean it could be so overwhelming to you um, that that might be a a response or a, a smile or something that totally doesn't fit fit the context, but it's the only way that you can process in that in that moment. In light of of the above, you know, perhaps laughter could be most properly considered as a, a weapon against suffering and despair. So if we can joke about a disappointing or traumatic event, we often find ourselves feeling that what's happened to us isn't so bad and that we'll be able to get through it. The expectation serves two vitally important functions. Uh, one is it diminishes or even eliminates the moment-by-moment -moment suffering we may otherwise experience as a result of a traumatic loss. So it might just be like, I'm hurting so bad, I'm hurting so bad, I don't want to hurt anymore. So, you know, this, this, this little break of, of just being able to, instead of cry, just to, to be able to, to do a laugh or a, a smile breaks this. It gives, it just gets me out of this moment by moment suffering. Yeah. Another one is it actually makes it more likely we will make it through trauma unmarred and flourish once again if we are able to take trauma, um, and, and have kind of this defense or this shield a little bit of, of some humor and laughter, which I think, you know, it's something, you probably have to have that. I mean, think of if you're a medic in the military um, out on a battlefield and, and things like that. I mean, you where it's going to be so cumulative. Um, it doesn't compromise the professionalism of what you do or anything like that. But um, a key question about laughter remains, however, does it create the expectation that we'll be all right or become all right? Because only because uh, possibly only because we found our way to a belief that things aren't really as bad as they seem. So it's that whole thing of like, you know, if I'm a critical instant debriefer and somebody's laughing and someone is able to, you know, inject um, some, some jokes, some smiles, some things like that, that is a two-way sign. It can be a sign that that person um, they can handle it, like that. The, that is their coping mechanism. They know how to effectively use it. It can also be that they are just so overwhelmed that they are they are just putting this this. They're not even aware of how much this laughter and how much this humor is coming out as as they're just trying to express this pain inside. So I think there there's two sides. There's two sides to that. So um, with, when faced with adversity, some people exhibit a great ability for turning to laughter as a soothing bomb, while others remain less able to do so. While this may be a result of differences in upbringing and genetics, I often wonder if it's equally as much a matter of intent. Perhaps many of us simply don't think to try to laugh, to try to think during a wild, completely um, overwhelming situation to just try to laugh, to just break it up so then you can can change your thought patterns. Rory Miller, I mentioned him before. He's an author of uh, several books that have to do with like um, verbal um, de-escalation, uh, verbal conflict, um, working through verbal conflict. And Rory Miller, R-O-R-Y-L-M-I-L-L-E-R, uh, I, I have his books, um, Conflict Communications, and he has worked in training like prison guards in understanding um, that the the fact something, all of a sudden you could be attacked by a prisoner or something like that. And you're, the first few times that happens for the first um, several seconds, you're not going to really fully know what to do. And it's going to take a moment, a couple moments, and then your training is going to click in. And he's he's teaching people, you know, get get that to train it, get that to click in faster. Be aware, and as soon as you become aware of, hey, like this this is, I need to do something. And I think that happens here too. Of like that laughter can help break it up and be like, okay, here's what I'm gonna, here's what we're going to do. Um, 
So let me get wrap this up here. Um, thank you so much for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast on the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. Thank you to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com out of Santa Barbara, Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in school bullying and safety reporting software, Sprigio. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast. You are not the average listener. You are above average. You want to get the rhetoric out of safety and you want to know what you can do to keep yourself safe, keep your family safe, and just information, hey, things that, that aren't covered in the mainstream media, interesting um, aspects just having to do with safety, with, you know, how we, we process the intellectual side of safety. So thank you so much. I appreciate your intellect. I appreciate your follows, shares of the show, Facebook, um, not Facebook, not on Facebook, on Twitter, um, getting into YouTube and, and just letting people know. So, so Victor Frankel, we talked about logotherapy in an earlier episode. Find it, logotherapy. It's actually one of my most popular episodes. Um, Victor Frankel was a uh, doctor, I believe a psychiatrist, who was taken prisoner by the Nazis in World War II. So he was in Auschwitz and he was in other prison camps. And a few things Victor Frankel said, and this is a quote, I would never have made it. Um, if I could not have laughed, this is being a prisoner, um, in the prison camp, laughing lifted me momentarily out of the horrible situation, just enough to make it livable, survivable. Also, Victor said humor, humor more than anything else in the humor, ma- in the human makeup affords an aloofness and an ability to rise above in any situation, even if for a few seconds, even if for a few seconds. So that was one of the things um, so important of where he would say he kept um, his ability to to be sane, um, to keep hope, was the fact that he did not lose his grasp on what he would call his noetic core. So, um, so um, soma would be body, psyche would be mind, Noetic core would, would be your your spirit, and part of the spirit would have to do with recognizing um, even fractional moments of, of where you could could laugh, um, and that was what kept him from not just surrendering or walking into the electrified fence. Victor Frankel, um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I strongly recommend if if you haven't read it. It's a short read. He wrote it about a year after he was released from the, the camp to right around 46. Um, so it's, it's very vivid, very graphic. You don't have that, that loss of detail because of uh, passage of time. For, so Frankel's concept is based on the premise that the primary motivational force of the individual is to find a meaning in life. The following list of tenets represent basic principles of logotherapy. One, life has meaning under all circumstances, even the most miserable ones. Even during those most miserable ones, and there's there are other studies out there, um, prisoners in prison camps who would one of the things if they could even keep you know one piece of, of humor, and it might be of a way that a guard um, dressed a, a certain way or just just something like that. Um, the other part, Victor Frankel saying, our main motivation for living is our will to find meaning in life. The third one, we have freedom to find meaning in what we do and what we experience at, or at least in the stance we take when faced with a situation of unchangeable suffering. And we've heard stories too about prisoners in, in prison camps who, when, you know, they would, they would be whipped or something, they would laugh. They would give a response which didn't meet what the person inflicting the pain was expecting. And that was their sense of, um, putting control, their control over the situation. So, um, I, I, I think it's, that's absolutely amazing. So just in closing my, my thoughts, um, I think that works to something lim- limit that the logotherapy, perhaps in a concentration camp when there aren't options at the moment, 